He's taking notes, you know. He's taking notes. <laughs> I know it all. I, I, I've heard I, it. You she, know it all. She knows Very everything. I was friends with him at that point. We've actually talked through a lot uh, of this stuff. We've actually okay, been helping great, each other a lot. Great. Hello and welcome to Rekindling Relationships with Beck and Vern. As well as podcasting, we run relationship workshops for organizations, as well as fun, creative dates to reconnect couples. We live in Bendigo with our blended family of four teenagers and a menagerie of animals. Welcome to our podcast designed to answer all the tricky questions to do with relationships, done in a fun, sometimes a little silly, but hopefully an informative way. Hey, everyone. Hi, everyone. And today we have Dr. Thomas Jordan speaking with us about his book, Learn to Love, the guide to healing your disappointing love life. And Dr. Thomas Jordan is a clinical psychologist and psychoanalyst in private practice in New York City, graduate of New York University's postdoctoral program in psychoanalysis. He's a creator of the Healthy Love Life Seminar. He's the founder of the Love Life Learning Center website to help in the treatment of repetitive love life problems. He has a group practice with his wife, Victoria, who is an experienced psychotherapist and couples therapist. Dr. Jordan has been studying and treating unhealthy love lives for more than 30 years now. And welcome to the podcast. That's quite a long time. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I've learned a few things over 30 years. Uh, I changed my own love life too, which uh, was really the first and most important reason why I wrote the book. Hmm. Um, Back in the 90s, I was in treatment with someone who understood love life problems, uh, my old analyst, and uh, I realized I was... uh, transporting a lot of learning from the family of origin origin into my love life in such a way as to uh, cause me disappointment after disappointment. So I made some changes and uh, I'd been married for 28 years to my wife, Victoria. She's in the next room. She's also a psychotherapist. I wanted to distill into the book an understanding of how changes can be made in a simple and straightforward way in a person's love life to begin the process of change. So That's the original motivation for writing the book. Another one is the number of patients that I've seen in my practice over the years that presented with uh, repetitive, unhealthy love life experiences. I mean, disappointments over and over again. And they're pretty much unconscious of how this has happened. My research indicates that people learn certain things in the family of origin, for example. That's a very important classroom for love life, love relationship experience. And they're unconscious of that learning. It happens very early. It can happen as a consequence of being in relationships with family members, observing relationships in the family of origin, even instruction from time to time. Elders may instruct younger people in a family about, you know, matters of the heart, love relationships, this kind of thing. And these things get replicated. And uh, and if they're unhealthy, they get replicated in such a way as to cause a problem in people's love lives. So third motivator is the divorce rate, which mm. is plagued. The hell out of me for very long. I mean, I I think it's a problem that requires a solution. Yeah. 50% for first marriages, 60 for second, and 73 for third. That's yeah, outrageous. it really shows we're not really learning anything. Mm. Nope. That we've actually keep on repeating the same mistakes, as you say, that repetition. Right. When you said learning anything, it's absolutely true. To make it even more specific, we're not unlearning anything. Mm. If you've learned something that's unhealthy and you're replicating it in your love life, 
the task before you is to unlearn that mm. and learn something healthier. And I guess if and, we uh, don't unlearn it, we're passing it on to next generations, aren't we? Right. And that's that's Vicious another cycle. problem. Mm. Right. And a tragic problem, to say the least. Mm. Um, in addition to people who reach the age of, you know, 40s, 50s, 60s and resign themselves to the hell with this. You know, it's too hurtful mm. making the same mistakes over and over again and not knowing why. Yep. Mm. So I, in my book, I condense it into a learning problem, which makes it more user-friendly because we learn from the beginning of life. Mm. And I propose a method that people can use to unlearn what they've learned. First, identify it, unlearn it, learn something better that moves their relationship, their love life relationships in a new direction. Yeah, and I think it's something which I really resonated with when I read your book. Like, I really enjoyed reading your book. It was quite an easy read. Loved your book, by the way. <laughs> and it, it was that sense. it actually made a lot of sense. Yeah. Like looking at it, and we both went through your book and we both read it. And then we both looked at those issues together. Because we both believe in how important it is for each of us to do our work on ourselves but then also to do our work on our relationship. You know, uh -huh. it's this combination of moving forward yeah. together. Right, absolutely. In my book, I emphasize that you change your love life on the inside out. You know, it's not about just how you act in public or where you go to meet people or what kind of clothes you wear. I mean, look, that's all fine, but it's what you're taking with you into your love relationships that's mm. really going to matter in terms of how your relationships are formulated and sustained. The psychological love life is really the emphasis here. Uh, identifying what's been learned, what experiences a person has that's gotten into their love life. Not all experiences early in life get into our love life. So there's a little bit of specificity, you know. I know people who've been abused and they don't abuse in their, in their love mm -hmm. relationships. It depends on the individual. So you look at the person's psychological love life, uh, to figure out what kind of unhealthy relationship experiences have gotten into the love life. And I, I list 10 in the book. I now have 12. I added Oh, you've two. added another couple. Of, <laughs> wow. They keep, they keep replicating, not replicating, but. It's something which you've seen in your practice for many years. So is it the fact that you suddenly saw that in yourself helped you then turn that sort of light onto other relationships like you know you've been Always. working with people mm. and then you went oh hang on a second this is how I'm this is what's affecting me this is my the inner work which hasn't been done now I know how other people might be suffering and what might be going Conceding on for them. others right uh, I like to call it I wouldn't see a shrink who wasn't shrunk <laughs> 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 in other words, yeah. if in my profession, uh, getting to know oneself mm. is a very important area of learning because it helps to know what it's like to be in pursuit of consciousness, to be a patient, mm. uh, to be in the process of personal change. And that understanding, that experience helps to work with people. Being sensitive to what happened in my own love life. I grew up in a uh, family of origin, and I was taught by my mother that all eligible women are dependent and controlling. And I took that experience unconsciously into my love life. And the scary part is I did find dependent controlling women. I, I, I had a radar for them, you know. But what's really scary to me is I met women who were not 
dependent and controlling, and I thought they were. Hmm. So you still found that, or you looked for that in that person? That's yeah, or, how or strong. A story. Yeah, and yeah. also right. projected your own what's going yes, on inside you. That's how strong my expectations were. Mm, mm. Very interesting. And that's scary to me. That demonstrated how locked in you can be by what you've learned from experiences that you've had. And when I was able to get into that and understand that the template my mother had offered me was pretty much from her own life. She never separated from her parents. They lived upstairs uh, in a tenement house. When I grew up as a kid, she never left home. She was controlling as a way to handle some of the dependency she was struggling with. So when I was able to challenge that and I was able to think of the unhealthy aspects of it and understand that independence and not controlling is a better way to be in a relationship with another person, I found myself moving in another direction. And it was interesting. That's when Victoria showed up. (laughs) I guess the radar changed. There's a quote I've heard, which is, if you don't go within, you go without. Uh-huh. And, I like that. Yeah, can I uh, use that? Is there a copyright? Yeah, no, there's no copyright. You, can, you go right away, right ahead. All right. <laughs> I, I'm sure I heard that of someone a long time ago as it was. Uh-huh. One thing which strikes me is that, you know, the, that inner work is so important to do and people don't do their own inner work. As we've heard this story, we listened to some other podcasts and, and we're like, oh, actually, this sounds very familiar because it actually was very much like um, the two of us. Uh-huh. And we met probably four years ago, and it was through our our youngest children were both at school together. But we both weren't ready for each other. And it wasn't until we'd actually done the work on ourselves and moved into a space where we were both ready to step into a relationship when uh-huh. we did. And then once we did, everything just happened fast after that. You know, within uh-huh. a few, you know, with nine months, we were moved in together. Within six months, we'd bought a house together. And then, you know, we got married about, three months ago so it's all just like boom 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 <laughs> happening yeah. really fast and the, the chemistry was there and you didn't have interferences it sort of mm. was allowed to grow on its own mm. and wonderful. then any other th- stuff that did come up i think the important part of it for me and reading this in your book was that anything that came up for me was held in a really beautiful space by Beck. So Beck was able to go, oh, she could see something's coming up for me, but rather than reacting and overreacting, and I had a very controlling mother. So your story of your mother and your relationship really resonated as well. I was like, oh, yeah, I, I totally get that. And but I'm so I've been bringing you. You don't know my mother, do you? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe my mother and your mother were friends. <laughs> yeah, you might know my mother. Oh my goodness! Yeah, so right. I think I, I think I might in that energetic sense yeah, because right. there were I had an overreactive mother who was very mm-hmm. controlling, and I pulled in all these relationships which were just like that over time, which were people overreacting or controlling or needy, and there's a whole lot of stuff going in there, and I I'm the one who's brought them into my life and now I've brought Beck into my life who's not like that and then I would create circumstances for her to overreact and she wouldn't overreact and I'd be like oh hang on a second <laughs> what's right. going on here right and right her presence and her ability to be able to stay very strong in it meant that I was able to help shift my old stuff I was able mm-hmm. to see it and go oh, okay that's not you that's me 
And now I can uh-huh. see why I'm doing it and how I'm doing it. In your book, you talk about that observation, that identification of that unhealthy mm-hmm. love life. And there was that uh-huh. identification of that. And then it was like, oh, okay, I need to challenge that and then move on from that. What you're describing, in my opinion, is an important resource in a love relationship. When partners are able to identify each other's learned experiences that complicate the relationship and communicate it to each Mm. other, it's very helpful. When I first got married and I uh, imported my mother into my relationship with my wife, I remember very early on, one time she looked at me and she walked away and she was she said very loudly i'm not your mother <laughs> she walked away and i i stood there thinking it was a very important moment like i like you're describing i had to review what i was expecting of her that wasn't about her it mm, was about yeah. me and my expectation mm. and as you described that's a very important moment it's like an uncoupling it's like letting something go over and over again mm. until it gets weaker and weaker and weaker. Mm. And so I think that the communication, if if a couple can develop the ability to co- communicate each other's um, relationship barriers as, you know, whatever's learned that might show up, and it shows up because mm. it's learned. If you grow up in a family of origin and you learn something, the power of that has to be appreciated. That occurred mm. when we were young. Mm. We were vulnerable. Yeah, These were adults. Mm. In your center, do you find that people that come to you sometimes get addicted to these patterns and really find them hard to break? Yes, always. They're not easy patterns to break. They would fall in the category of habits, I think, mm. because there's a lot of emotion attached to them. Mm. Uh, If you think about the list of unhealthy relationship experiences, for example, abandonment. Unfortunately, I've seen a number of patients over the years who were abandoned by a parent. Mm. Um, Say, for example, a woman who comes into treatment and she was abandoned by a father when she was young. Now she's of age to have love relationship, possibly get married. And she has a fundamental mistrust that men will be emotionally available. Mm. But she selects emotionally unavailable men. Mm. But what's interesting is a person will say, I don't want to go out with men like this. I don't want to go out mm. with women like this. But then gravitate toward mm. them. In so their logical brain knows it's not right. But their uh-huh. subconscious keeps wanting to go down that path, doesn't it? Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And that illustrates your what you're pointing at is which is the strength of that learning Mm. the intensity of that learning so the first step in the unlearning process to identify what is being replicated is a very important one and and it just reaffirms the importance of consciousness Mm. consciousness is a wonderfully powerful asset Mm. but it's not just becoming aware of something. That's the first step, but that's not good enough. I think of consciousness as something that has to be applied. It's a tool that you use to rebuild something. So once you become conscious of one of these patterns we're discussing, you have to enter a process of challenging the automatic nature of that pattern Mm. so that you can disrupt it. That's the understanding that I'm trying to get across in the book, that the consciousness is a tool 
to disrupt the automatic replication of this process. And you do that by working on your own love life, doing the work, as you said earlier. I think you talk about doing the opposite to what you want to do. Yes, that's stage three. In my profession, there are people that believe that bad experience is corrected by healthy experience. Mm. The power of experience is very formidable. Mm. If someone, for example, grows up in a family where there's a lot of deceit and dishonesty, comes into therapy, and I practice honesty and straightforward, Mm. uh, we might have problems, Mm. but problems that work toward a correction Mm. to learn the importance of truth and honesty. That would be an experience that would offer a patient, for example, who's been brought up on dishonesty, an opportunity to learn something new. It's like, Mm. okay, what happens if I tell the truth? I might be able to set up the conditions for real love to take place Mm. in my life, et cetera, Mm. et cetera. I really related to this because as I was growing up, I remember I hit about my 20s and I didn't get this job offer that I felt like I should have gotten. Long story short, I had a big meltdown and I went to a doctor and he said to me, oh, you haven't got depression or anything. He said, he asked me a number of questions. He said, it's your thinking. He said, you're not thinking in a positive way. You're, you keep going down this pattern. Was, what are your parents like? And I explained my parents to him. And my dad was very much a negative thinker. And I realized that I'd copied my dad's way of thinking And so Mm -hmm. my pattern was always to think about the negative Uh instead of the positive. And so he gave me this book to read, which was all about changing your neuro pathways in your brain Uh to not keep going down the same pathway. And so I had Uh to consciously, every time I thought negative, I would consciously think about the positive. I had to retrain my brain. You took a piece of the familiar and the familiar is a good or bad thing. Yeah. Dad's familiar was not healthy. Yeah. And you recognize that and work to, to transform it into the opposite, a more healthy transformation. Yeah, and now it's an easy thought pattern for me. Now it tends to be, oh, think about the positive. But that took a lot of work of doing the opposite to what my brain Yeah, and, and part of the work, if I me. may say, part of the work is an emotional reckoning. Uh, dear old dad is not easy to let go of mm. sometimes. Dear old mom. I mean, even if mom was a pain in the you-know-what, we can hold her close. Mm. It reminds me of the children in court when the judge says, do you want to live with your mother who was abusive to him or uncle or Aunt Mary? And he looks at the judge and says, I want to go home. The familiarity, the attachment is Mm. very powerful, and that attachment becomes a pathway within which we bring with us. You use the word copying. Copying is observational learning, Mm. unconscious learning. And as children, we adapt to some of these patterns our parents show Mm. us. That's how we learn as kids, by copying, isn't it? Mm. Mm. And you had a quote in your book which was that love is difficult because the health and success of your love life is determined by what you've learned about love relationships in your life. And that's what it's all about, isn't it? The fact that we've gone up learning about love relationships and those love relationships are unconsciously what's happening around us for the most part Uh as kids. Those ideas, those beliefs, those patterns will just as you say, repeat and replicate until we actually are aware of them. Yes, and to break it down onto another level, uh, if you want to understand how to 
look at what you've learned, to discover what you've learned, to understand, to see it, to become aware of it, it breaks down into beliefs, behaviors, and feelings. Hmm. On these three levels, we're able to understand what we've taken. For example, when I left home, the answer to the question, what do you believe about love relationships was, all women are dependent and controlling. And that's the pool of women from which I have to choose. Mm. That was my belief. It wasn't in the forefront of my consciousness. It was in the back room. Mm. Mm. Uh, my behavior was to gravitate towards this type of person. I had a, a woman with a great sense of humor in my practice uh, a lot of years ago, and she was in recovery from alcoholism, a middle-aged woman, and we were joking around and and she was doing pretty well at this point in the treatment. And I said to her, if I were to have a party with 50 men, not a drop of alcohol, and one of them is a raging alcoholic, would you be talking to that man at the end of the evening? She said, yes, I would. <laughs> I know him. I could tell. It's like a challenge. And that's mysterious. You know, mm. it's like the behavior of gravitating. Now, what that helps, if we look at feeling, I think in the... We've got belief, behavior, and feeling. Now, in the area of feeling, I think the mysteries lie. Like feelings are not only what takes place inside, but feelings are projected. People pick up feelings. For example, we have a, a wonderful capacity to experience sympathy. Sympathy. Mm. Empathy, too, but sympathy is more primitive. If you're next to someone who's sad and hurt and you're a human being, you're going to feel something. Mm. You're going to feel some of that feeling. Mm. We can pick it up. Pick we it up. can mm. copy the feeling into our own experience directly. I think feelings are going on a lot in the mm. process of finding people to love, mm. gravitating towards unhealthy patterns. So uh, being aware of the feeling is a very important part of that three-part getting to know what we've learned about love relationships. I like that you mentioned too that we attract that into our life because we need to heal that in ourselves. And I think like ah. you mentioned there, instinctively we will attract that thing because mm. our emotional self needs to heal. And so we'll keep mm. pulling that into our life until we're triggered enough to fix that thing. You're very optimistic. <laughs> I'll tell you. I'll tell you why. Uh, she is like very optimistic. You, it's one things I love about her. I like what you said, but I would add something to yeah. it. I think that to see these problems as a need for healing is very important. But unfortunately, some people are just stuck. Mm, yeah. Yeah. And they repeat like a broken record. Mm. And I think of it more as the unhealthy power of unconscious mm. experience. They mm. can just be stuck. But mm. once they identify the pattern, mm. then it becomes what you're pointing out, an opportunity to make mm. real change in your yeah. life. And that's so I like to put those two ideas together side mm. by side. Bex passed your book on to a couple of her friends who do seem to be in that pattern of just repeat, 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 wondering why nothing's changing. I would say that, you know, for myself as well, for most of my life, I've just been repeating the same pattern or patterns because there's been a few in those different psychological love lives, so those different headings 
that I can relate to. In that psychological love life, you talk about abandonment, exploitation, abuse, mistrust, control, neglect, dependency, rejection, dishonesty, self-centeredness. And you have two more? Yeah, I've added uh, dominance and intrusion. Dominance and intrusion. Mm. uh, Dominance is an unfortunate thing that you can learn and bring into a love relationship where equality goes out the door and what you're basically doing is recreating powerlessness and helplessness in a relationship, mm-hmm. a love relationship. Mm-hmm. So that I think that can be fundamentally unhealthy. An intrusion uh, where boundaries are not respected is another mm-hmm. big mm-hmm. problem in love relationships. Mm-hmm. And some people, unfortunately, have learned how not to respect boundaries and intrude and violate people's experiences in a love relationship. So I, I, I see a lot of that. So I added those two, but I leave it open-ended. I don't know what else is coming. <laughs> Who knows? We're collecting. We're collecting, We're collecting all of them. I guess the more, you, del- goes on, yeah, the more you delve into it, then the more that you can I, say. I make the point in the book that it has not stopped evolving. Mm. It's amazing. You know, I think people in my profession have stayed away from love. Mm. Uh, love has been... I don't know. I mean, some people have these notions that it's not scientific. I like to tell the story. Have you ever heard of Leo Buscaglia? Does that name ring a bell? I think you spoke about him in your book, didn't you? Yeah. 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 He, uh, Leo Buscaglia, back in the 70s, an Italian fellow in California, University of Southern California, I believe. And he was a very emotionally oriented person. And he really loved his students and so on. And one of his female students committed suicide as a consequence of a love relationship problem, right? So he was very devastated by that. And he went to the administration of the university and said to the administrator, I have to teach a love class. My students need to learn about how to manage love, love relationships. And they laughed at him. Leo, don't you have enough to do? Come on. And he persisted and persisted. Make a long story short, they gave him a room to teach in, no credit. He taught this course in the early 70s, four years in a row, 100 students enrolled, standing room only. Wow, that's amazing. Now, the question you should ask, I think, is, does the University of Southern California have a love class in the year 2022? Yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> I bet it doesn't. But, I bet it doesn't too. Uh, yeah. And that's something we noticed when we were mentoring people. We mm. noticed that if people were in their relationships were going really well and they were happy in their love relationship, then they could weather any storm, any, any troubles that came their way, they were fine. And mm-hmm. then it was the reverse. Their relationships were struggling, then, you know, and their life other than their relationship was going great, you know, financially and blah, blah. Then they weren't coping with life. So we realized very quickly that people's happiness was very much hinged on how they were doing in their love relationship and how much they could cope with it. And not just, not just their love relationship, their connections in general. It's how they connect with other people. And they didn't have uh-huh. to be in a love relationship to be happy, but they did have to have good, strong connections and not to be taking, I guess, whatever's going on inside them and then projecting it on other people. Yeah, so if, yeah. if those relationships were good, then they tend to be pretty happy. And if they were in an intimate relationship and that was, that was good, 
then yeah, life works. Life's much easier, isn't and it? Even if they weren't much, in an intimate relationship, it tended to be the same story about them looking for love. You know that that tended to be the problem that they kept addressing. You know, it all ended up heading towards you know how they can be better or how they can get in a relationship that's going to work or you know what they did in the past that didn't work and that ended up being yeah. the, the pivotal problems in most conversations mm, and so much sabotage yeah, yeah. It, at my website the love life learning center i uh, every once in a while i write a post that gets a lot of commentary and one of them was uh i wrote a few years ago and i've i've changed it a few times since title of the post is living without love in your life. And boy, did I get an avalanche of commentary on that post and realized as a consequence how many people there were out there that were resigned to the idea that love is not for them. Mm. Series of disappointments. Mm. Yeah, you spoke about Mm. that um, idea of hope and that depending on your hope, whether it determines that two primary forms of that unhealthy love life, whether it's at multiple disappointments and so the needs aren't being met, that, but you keep hoping you'll find one, so you just keep on searching. And then that uh-huh. resignation where the hope is lost and there's right. no such thing as and a good relationship. It's tragic too because you can go into resignation after a couple of disappointments. I've met people that went into resignation at one after one or two. My, brother, my actual that- brother did that, Tom. He oh, had yeah. one relationship in his 20s that fell apart and he fell apart. And I don't think he's actually, you know, 20, 30 years later, I don't think he's ever actually gone, got past that point. Yeah, that, that's very sad. Mm. You know, and it's tragic because I believe and I've had the experience of working with people in their 50s and 60s, for example, where they look back at what was going on in their love lives that created the disappointment and they realize it's something that can be unlearned. Again, mm. the power of unlearning, and they generate a sense of hope that, okay, if I make these changes, and the changes oftentimes come when people get serious about, I call it working on your love life, but another way to describe it is they begin to study their love life. It's like, what's going on in my love life? You know, I work on my financial life. I work on my physical life, my medical life, my occupational life. What's wrong with working on your love yeah. life, your yeah. love life? It, it, it seems just to be doesn't... last on the list. Things we <laughs> or, or not on the list. <laughs> or not, yeah, it's so true. You know, we say and, that and all the time. <laughs> and I have a theory why. And I think the theory is because the family of origin has been a sacred place. Hmm. We don't mess with the family. We're messing with the family of origin more in the 21st century than we did in the 20th century. We're looking at the family of origin. What I talk about is you can have deep respect for the family of origin, but you're studying what works for you and what doesn't. You're challenging what you've learned and what you should change. I love my dear old mother. She's Mm. now gone. She's Mm. up in heaven. (laughs) But I don't accept everything she's taught me. That's a really good point. And I think it's like we would say in Australia, you'd say, you know, slagging someone off or bagging them out. And the the idea of this is not, we're not bagging out. We're not disrespecting our no. elders. We're not disrespecting our families or what they've gave, given to us in the past and, you know, the sacrifices, et cetera. We're actually having a good look at breaking it up and saying, okay, there was some really good bits probably in there, but what uh-huh. are the bits that actually were not healthy in our relationship, 
which I'm now repeating, replicating, creating in my own life, which I can change. So then I don't actually pass that on again because that's what's going to happen. If if that stuff isn't healed, then that stuff just gets passed on the next generation and then they have to deal with it. Over and over and over Mm. again. Mm. Right. And again, you know, the the fact that it's learned makes it accessible. Mm. It's not something we're born with. When When I talk about this to people, I say, I'm not here to talk about love. I'm here to talk about love relationships. The relationships we form when we fall in love. Mm. That's what I'm looking at. Yeah. That's what I'm concerned about. Love is a wonderful thing. I don't know. You probably can fall in love more than once in your life. Is it biological, spiritual, psychological? Who knows? I hope it stays <laughs> beyond our control. It's some form of magic. <laughs> Forever. Really. Yes. Forever. Magical, yeah. right. Yeah. Um, the relationship you form when you fall in love, that's important. You don't have to be the paragon of mental health to have a love life. Think about it. Love can come to you and you can be setting up unhealthy relationships to contain that love, that stifle the love before it's time. Mm. You make a correction there. You preserve and sustain the love that you're experiencing. Mm. Mm. You're paying attention to how to take care of this fragile phenomena that has occurred in your emotional life. And there may be other things you're doing that are not healthy or other changes you need to make in your life. Okay, but in this area, you're functioning like a conscious gardener. You're keeping this little plant alive. Mm. You're taking good care of it. You're learning how to cultivate and develop it, get it strong, sustain it over time. To me, That's the answer for our divorce rate. The 50% of the people in first marriages that are losing their marriages, I imagine they've fallen in love and they've set up an unhealthy love relationship. Mm. Mm. Yep. Absolutely. If they became aware of how they set up this unhealthy love relationship when they fall in love, Mm. how would that affect the percentage? And to say on third marriages, 73% divorce rate. Wow, that's a, that's that's a lot of massive. That's, <laughs> that's a lot of repetition. That's so much repetition. Repetition with a big R. Repetition. <laughs> Is it that people are getting into these second and third marriages and going, oh, it wasn't me. It was the other person. Uh-huh. Oh, because yes, you mentioned exactly. about changing exactly. partners right. rather than self. Yeah, you, changing your partners right. rather than changing yourself. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, in, in the book, I talk about the psychological love life, the experience, what we learn, and then there's the area of after effects. Yes, the after, after effects. effects inevitably occur when we have hurtful experiences. So uh, I think of after effects as the person's unconscious attempt to fix their own love life. The common ways they do that is, one of them is defensiveness. Uh, and, and the big categories of defensiveness are you can avoid love relationships entirely. Some mm. people do that. You can try to be distant in love relationships. Okay, you live on that side of the house, Victoria. I'll live on mm. this side, mm. <laughs> you know, and uh, try to avoid each other's issues. Okay, you can do that. That's going to be a problem in the long run. Or you can generate conflict all the time, which some people do, Mm. which never allows a relationship to develop into a deeper level of intimacy. Mm. So these are common ways in which defensiveness takes hold of a person's love life. And you can think of them as an effort to try to correct something. Multiple Mm. disappointments. Let me see if I can 
introduce some defensiveness to take care of it. Another interesting after effect is trying to fix the person you're in love with. Ah, mm. I'll turn him into a loving man. Mm. <laughs> I'll love the crap out of him and turn him into a loving man. Impossible. Mm. In all the years I've been looking at these phenomena, I have never encountered someone who changed someone else. People yeah. don't change because someone else wants you to. They change because they're motivated individually to make change. And another variation on, on that particular after effect is multiple partners. Okay, the solution to my love life is to get rid of the intimacy. I'll just see one person after another. Mm -hmm. I'll substitute multiple partners and stay in the safe zone. Yeah, I, I have a feeling that resonates with me. And you talked about the 20th century playboy, and I think that was definitely me in a large part of my life, which was... He's taking notes, you know. He's taking notes. <laughs> I know it all. I, I've heard it. I, you she, know it all. She knows Very everything. We, I was friends with him at that point. <laughs> we've, we've, actually, we've actually talked through a lot of this stuff. We've actually okay, been helping great, each other a lot. That's and right. that recognition, she understands that me, I was, I was you know, it was that idea of every you know, one to three years, changing partners, being with someone new, um, never having to go too deep, always keeping a bit of a distance as well in that relationship. So I was independent and I didn't have to deeply connect because yeah. I wasn't actually taking care of that, in doing that inner work, which was like, oh, you uh -huh. need to actually shift some of this stuff. And, you know, there's been in that, uh, probably in our relationship where there is a much deeper trust where I feel like, oh, I actually want to be in this relationship. I don't want to sabotage this relationship. I think I've, I did try at the beginning to sabotage it, uh -huh. but um, Beck's pretty good at just being like, no, 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 hang on a sec. Uh -huh. <laughs> mm -hmm. So sort uh -huh. of pointing out that, that that's my stuff. And mm -hmm. then, yeah, so we've actually worked our way through into where we've got quite a, quite a beautiful, deep connection because we've yeah, been Yeah, and the, the word I would attach to it is vulnerability. Mm, yes. Uh, love's best friend is vulnerability. Vulnerability means you're open. People try to have love without vulnerability. That's the defensive method of mm. trying to be in love. Mm. When you don't have vulnerability, love suffocates. It doesn't breathe. It doesn't have enough oxygen. The problem with vulnerability is you can be hurt. Mm. Yeah. yeah. So if you've had unresolved hurts in love, you're going to be stuck with this conflict, vulnerability of defense. Mm. Yep. And uh, that's a big problem because mm. unresolved hurts tend to keep people self-protective mm. and, yes. and mm. defensive. And it makes sense. People don't want to be they hurt be over hurt. and over again, especially, especially when they don't know why it's happening. Mm. When it's unconscious. Unconscious, yeah. right. That's, that's the, if you were to say, what's the big problem with love relationship learning? It's the fact that we learn unconsciously. We're not aware that we're learning or what we're learning, what we're learning or that we're even learning. We're not aware. It's blank. But experience is so powerful that it can teach us all kinds of things without consciousness. That's the big issue to contend with because unconscious learning cannot be changed until you make it conscious. Learning cannot be unlearned until it's made conscious. Mm. So, mm. unfortunately, learned unconscious patterns can persist for a lifetime. And unfortunately, 
they do for a large number of people. Mm. And that's, I guess, one of the reasons why your book is actually so important to draw attention to that. It's actually put a spotlight yeah. on that and go, okay, that's yeah. actually not working for you. What else can you do? I've gotten some very good reviews. I, I've gotten a lot of green light. I've been working on, for about two years now, a PowerPoint presentation that teaches what the book teaches with images. Because mm. images can be very powerful mm. to yeah. convey messages, especially mm. emotional ones. So I'm looking forward to, in the fall, trying to get out to some live audiences and really use the PowerPoint to invite people into the experience of actually becoming conscious of these things to initiate idea of becoming conscious of their love life. That would be very gratifying. Mm. So I, yeah. mm. I'm kind of excited about that. Mm. You know? So you're I got Victoria out in the audience with a mic, you know, <laughs> <laughs> so she can check me if I kind of distort the reality of my life experience. That's what you do. <laughs> <laughs> I think she's, oh, always, she's always keeping a check. Because like, oh, I'm the one right. who would just be like, blah, 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 and blah, blah, blah. It didn't happen exactly like that, yeah. Tom. Oh, her mic's cut out. Oh, that does sound, that does sound no, familiar. No, but hey, I'm a little bit of a masochist. You, I put my wife in the audience with a mic. Oh, my God. What am I doing? Do you find things... Oh, well, hey, vulnerability, vulnerability. Oh, no. <laughs> and do you as That's a... the definition. <laughs> Look, Tom... your wife's got a mic too, right? Oh, I know. But I, I actually have control over whether I, we can hear her or not, so I can turn Turn it off over here. <laughs> I have got in trouble. You just won't get fed dinner. Later. I won't get. I have got in trouble for that before. So, <laughs> so Tom, years oh, later, do you do you find things still come up for you in Victoria? Oh, good question. Yeah. Uh, yes, but mildly. Mm. When you beat a dead horse, yeah. you beat it out of commission completely. Mm. In other words, I think what happens is. At the very beginning, and I'm not sure how long it lasted, I would probably say for the first 10 years, maybe, she and I would help each other become aware of how things were showing up in our relationship. Mm. And then a process of becoming more aware of it ourselves took place, and the conversation changed a little bit. Like, it wasn't so much I needed her to point it out. I was able to see it a mm. little bit faster than yeah. I was earlier on. Mm. And I think because of repetition, repetition is always a prelude to learning. So mm. you're doing something over and over again. You're taking very seriously. Creating a new And habit. nowadays, if it comes up, it comes up as a tongue-in-cheek, a little comment, a little smile. Mm. Uh, my mother's name was Hilda, and my, my wife will say, I think Hilda's in the room. <laughs> That's so okay. clever, isn't it? And, and let's be equal. She hmm. gets that as much as I get it. So yeah. don't forget that. Which <laughs> ones did she have growing up? Which ones of that? Like, you mean? Yeah, which, do you mean that unhealthy relationship experience? Yeah. Yeah. Victoria comes from a divorced family. Okay. Um, her father left. Uh, her mother left her father when she was thirteen years of age, and the man her mother coupled up with after the divorce was abusive psychologically. So she came in with mistrust issues. Trust was a big issue for her. Mm. Um, uh, there was a bit of neglect that mm. was part of the experience because around the time of the divorce, for a while, uh, the parents were having problems with each other. And I think the her and her brother were left on the sidelines a little too much as a consequence of that difficulty. Mm. So... Um, these were issues for her. 
uh, that created insecurity, the mistrust and the neglect creating insecurity that would show up. Uh, it would for Victoria. It was getting real close, and then where is she? Mm. <laughs> Where'd she yeah. go? Mm. You know, she'd go into a protective mode, like yep. mm. um, away. Yeah, and you know, she married a guy who goes and gets her. Mm. <laughs> so I'm knocking on the door. You in there? Yeah, yeah. yeah. That, yeah. that was my job. Isn't that interesting? Because it's like the the two um, the different unhealthy love life experiences sort of wrap around each other where uh -huh. you start doing right. the, the unhealthy uh -huh. things t for each other. So you're uh -huh. never really getting into uh, intimate, like a deep connection because you're constantly uh -huh. like reacting off each other. Seeing the reactions, stepping back and going, oh, you did this, I did this. Even stepping out of that dance. Right. And that's where the consciousness comes in because the consciousness basically begins to work against the automatic nature of that dance you're describing. Mm. And that's really uh, the process of unlearning beginning, in a, in, whether it's looking at your own pattern or watching a pattern being manifested with somebody else in a relationship. The consciousness is really where it starts. And consciousness and communication are very important in a couple, but they're also important in an individual because uh, the conversation we have with ourselves is very important. Mm. You know what I mean? Uh, I think it is. As you become aware of these patterns, you're having a dialogue with your own mental functioning in such a way as to become, oh, I'm not going to do that. Mm. You know, mm. that's one of the people I should avoid. Yeah. Mm. Um, you know, I did a little, uh, <clears throat> I did a little survey a while back part of my clinical research for the book, you know, I would ask people when they were love life issues in conversation, I would ask people, did you see this pattern at the beginning of the relationship? Because I was convinced it shows up right away. People can't mm. hide who they are. They mm. show you fundamental mm. dynamics, so to speak. Everybody said, well, now that you mention it, yeah, at the very beginning, one person mm. said, no, nothing. And I was troubled by that. Wait a minute. Can you describe your first date with your abusive husband? And she did. And this is what she told me. Nice restaurant. Everybody was combed and groomed. Nice car. Beautiful food. He began to tell a story. In the middle of his story, I said to him, excuse me, I have to go to the restroom. He said, no, 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 no. Wait till I'm done. This is very important, and I don't want to forget it. And she sat down and waited till he was done. And I said to her, wasn't it controlling men you were telling me you didn't want to have in your life? Hmm. And she sat there thinking about it. You know, maybe that was a little too much control to have over a dinner table. Hmm. If somebody wants to go to the bathroom, you shouldn't be interfering with that mm. function. Mm. But it's subtle. Yeah. yeah. It's really subtle, isn't it? Right. And that's how it can show up. But if people have been studying the pattern, say, for example, they're dating. They're dating people. They're looking around in their love life for a partner. If they study the pattern, if they become conscious of it enough, the ability to identify mm these traces of unhealthy relationship experience 
become stronger. Mm. And I find it's very optimistic for change because people become, and they, they use the therapy, for example. They'll say, oh, I went on a date last night with a, a new man, but I don't think he's a guy for me. Why? Uh, because of the, the same old pattern showed up again. And they, they mention what was in the story, what was in the behavior, what made them think. And I get a chance to review it with them to see whether or not they're projecting something or they're observing something. Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah, so, that's good away. Uh, but it's yeah. a self-study. It's a self-study mm. that's very important and, and, and improves a person's ability to discriminate what kind of person is good for their love life and what kind of person they should be avoiding. Yeah, that's powerful and very important. Yeah, so to important. To bring that awareness, yeah. Yeah, bringing that awareness can be difficult. Like, you know, that idea, you know, love can be tricky because we actually don't know what we we do subconsciously what we just mm. do without thinking it's just as you say you've got to bring consciousness to, to make it more visible you've got to bring awareness is to empower a person mm. to have uh i like to think of it as a little more control over what's going on in their love life i don't think you ever get a hundred percent control i think that's unrealistic but you shouldn't have any control it shouldn't be something you're not managing at all, just mm. replicating over mm. and over again based on early experience. I mean, if your early experience was healthy, fine, everything's wonderful. You'll probably replicate that in your love life. That's wonderful. Yeah. But if your early experience was not healthy, you need to manage something. You need mm. to look at the relationships you form when you fall in love. That's the area. Mm. that we need to work with. I think for us as parents, and we have four teenagers in the house, so we've got a blended family of two boys and two girls. That's something which we've spoken about, the importance of us actually having a good relationship and a deep connection and working through our stuff because we are inevitably going to pass on this to our own kids. Mm. What they see us doing and they see the way we relate and the way we deal with things is what they're picking up on. And then our relationship obviously with them as well. Uh-huh. Well, the more conscious the two of you are, mm. the more communicative the two of you are, which communication is really a vehicle of mutual consciousness in a relationship. Mm. Um, they're very compatible, communication and consciousness. Uh, the more conscious and communicative the two of you are, the more what you pass on will be visible to mm. you. And that's, that's the advantage. Also, your kids might make comments that are worth considering in their innocence, in their naivety, mm. in their feeling. Mm. They may pick up something the two of you are doing with each other and make a comment. Mm. If you just simply put it to the side and say, oh, it's immaturity, mm. then you miss an opportunity. That's true. Because mm. sometimes our children give us feedback. Mm. I have a 24-year-old son who's thinking about becoming a mental health professional, and he's still living with my wife and I. Yeah. Uh, he's thinking of going to graduate school, and he'll probably leave then. And <laughs> he makes observations regularly. <laughs> <laughs> They're very honest, oh. aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? I've grown an appreciation for how a third party can look at your marriage mm. and say, ah, what are the two of you talking about in that example? <laughs> mm. So... I think it's good to to see it as an opportunity because sometimes they point stuff out from their perspective mm. that can be useful. So it's true. like a little so bit true. of a consciousness-inducing mm. feedback. Yeah, and your kids tend to have feedback. no filter either, so they'll, <laughs> <laughs> they'll tell you pretty so straight. <laughs> uh -huh. uh, I wish uh -huh. they had a filter. 
Yeah. <laughs> 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 right, so we're just going to put a filter on them sometimes. They will. <laughs> it's really interesting going through like, you know, with this psychological love life and you talked about the different experiences we've had and then the after effects of those. So like for abandonment, the feeling in there is loss for dishonesty. Dishonesty, so, Yeah, right. so with dishonesty, <clears throat> yeah, the feeling is being deceived. These are the ones I bring up probably because it's the ones which relate most to me. So we've gone through these and looked and gone, oh, okay, hang on. For Beck, she talks about control and control is something which came up with her family. And then the feeling was feeling of being trapped. And then uh-huh. when you start doing the opposite, so when you identify it, here's the problem, this is what's coming up. We're going to challenge that and then we're going to practice the opposite. And what was really interesting for me was that the opposite of abandonment was attachment. Right. I felt like I've always uh-huh. been running away. So like, you know, in and out of relationships, in and out of houses. The opposite being attachment, practicing that opposite was for me being in a relationship with Beck and going, right, this is a stable, permanent relationship. I'm staying stay in, in one this, place. Stay right. in one place. So we, we bought a house together, moved in together. For me, I haven't actually lived in the same place for more than a year to three years my whole life. So I've always been moving. So it was, yes. oh, okay, now I'm going to be stable. I'm going to live in one place and I'm going to be uh-huh. with this one person and that's right. going to be stable as well. For me, the attachment side of that was to ask her to marry me. And then for us to get married, because now it's like, I actually feel like we have this stable relationship, which I've never had, you know, this stable feeling in my life. So that now the abandonment issues and the the unhealthy stuff is sort of just gone away. As I've worked on it bit by bit by bit, I go, oh, okay, that actually doesn't come up for me anymore. I think what happens in my experience with abandonment is that what you've done is you've gone over a very important hurdle in establishing attachment and commitment. And that is the opposite. That'll move your love life in a healthier direction. Of course, I want to add a footnote. When you've had a powerful experience of abandonment, attachment can make a person anxious. Attachment can be uncomfortable. It can create feelings, unfamiliarity. And Mm. by the way, the root of familiarity is family. Mm. Unfamiliar. It's an unfamiliarity that you're now, as a middle-aged adult, oh, wait, am I, uh, I hope you're not, uh, <laughs> are you a middle-aged adult? Oh, I am indeed. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Very good. I don't want to make any assumptions. <laughs> Some people look early, uh, younger than their age. <laughs> to be able to identify those discomforts can become part of that journey. Mm. to move into the opposite. What I've also found about abandonment is sometimes there are little hurdles that come after the big one has been overcome. The little hurdles can be the ways in which people distance themselves in a Mm. relationship. In other words, you can leave without leaving. And Mm. I find that some of my abandoned patients Mm. know how to do that. So like emotionally disconnect? Is that what disconnect. you mean? Mm, the like disconnect. Disconnect. Right. Mm. And it's not like they're intending, let me disconnect now, I feel uncomfortable, or let me go in an abandonment direction in the context of a relationship. It's not conscious. It's more like trying to disconnect. That's a good word. That's about the best word to use. Mm-hmm. It's the disconnection process that is close to the abandonment mm. issue. Mm. And I think the work in reversing this experience occurs until the end of life. Mm. And it can occur 
internally in the form of let me reconnect Mm. instead of say disconnected. Mm. Let me look for the signs when my wife feels like I'm disconnected and she's giving me a sign that I'm disconnecting. Mm. Uh, Let me put fine tuning on that process of staying connected. And you know, what's interesting about uh, Mm. connection is that people can be separate, but connected. Mm. (laughs) Yes. You know, I can leave my wife and be connected. Mm. (laughs) I don't have to disconnect Mm. to separate. Uh, If I leave for the weekend with my friends and this is a mutually agreed upon thing I'm doing, Mm. I can do it in a way that is connected and not disconnected. So true. Mm -hmm. And I will know that by her feelings by her comment, by her cooperation with the formation of this, and vice versa. Mm -hmm. My wife likes to go to uh, reunions. She has a lot of friends at reunions. To go to a reunion takes a couple of two, three days. She does it in a way that we remain connected. Mm -hmm. I don't feel like suddenly she's dropped out of my life, Mm -hmm. and I don't know where she is. The Love Life Learning Center is a website that I wanted, the, the first order of business for that website was to be an online library mm-hmm. of real articles <clears throat> in different areas of love life. You know, not the hearts and flowers so much as, you know, should I take the father of my child to family court? Should I, uh, uh, how can I separate in an unhealthy relationship? And, you know, uh, there's a, There's over 300 articles on that site that people can use that I think promote a little more consciousness. The other thing we offer, my wife and I do telehealth. People that have read the book, for example, a percentage of people might need some support, some guidance, some ideas about how to navigate through the unlearning method, have a success experience with that. So they they set up some telehealth sessions with my wife or myself and And so that's a convenient and easy way to do it. And I have a practice on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, regular Mm. practice. Fantastic. It seems like like you're not only doing the work, you're living the work, you're creating the work. (laughs) And doing it together too, which is really nice. So it's both of your passion and both working at it together. Yeah, and that's sort of like the reason why we're talking to you is that you know our passion is actually talking we love having conversations we love having chat Uh we created this podcast the rekindling relationships podcast as Uh a way to have a whole lot of resources that people can actually listen to it's a couple talking about their own experiences and what's worked for them and what they've read and what they've learned and Uh so that there's more opportunities out there for people to learn about their own love lives and their relationships and what's going on for them and what might be the blocks or challenges and then yes. learn how to communicate with each other and have yeah, better conversations. Right. Uh-huh. Yeah. You know, we feel because, you know, we're in a, I guess, a heteronormative relationship. So it's a man with a woman. And so when someone listens to us in those sort of relationships or any relationships or singles as well, you know, they're yes. hearing this too. Uh-huh people talking about a topic, they're talking about it from maybe their own perspectives. That allows for more conversation to happen. Yeah. We really believe in that. Uh I love the fact you do it as a couple. I think that's important. That's what you're pointing at. That Mm. the couple aspect is very powerful. I also like the name of your podcast, which is a kind of a, you know, it's, it's an interesting name, rekindling Mm. relationships. And I mean, the image in my mind is that, 
a fire has gone out mm. and can be brought back. Yes. Like, yeah. how do you rekindle it? I assume that there are quite a few relationships, perhaps people who are married or in committed love relationships, they've sort of traveled away from their love, so to speak. They've not nurtured it beyond a certain point, perhaps, mm. and the fire has gone out. Mm. Some awareness that the rekindling process can occur. Mm. And so they're still together, but they don't know how to do it. Yeah, They don't exactly. know how to reignite. I used to do a lot of marital and couples therapy back when. Oftentimes I would have a couple, you know, the man comes in with his arms folded, the woman's looking at me like, fix this guy. You know? and <laughs> they're not communicating to each other anymore. And uh. I become the bridge that mm. they renegotiate communication with each other again, and then they stop talking to each other. And then inevitably, they remember what it was like at the beginning of their relationship when they fell in love with each other. And it's a very interesting moment in the couple's work because that's the moment when they go fishing for the old feeling. Like, where is mm. it? It's in here somewhere. It's in this lake somewhere. Mm. We can, we can yeah. get it again. We can light it again. Mm. And I have seen couples like, really change their manner of interacting, you know, like mm -hmm. on my couch, you know, they're, they're like, oh, yeah, you remember when we went out on that date and one starts laughing and the other one starts remembering and, and they, they have a moment of intimacy, they remember and memories mm -hmm. can be very powerful in this, in this way, you know, yeah. mm -hmm. and they in with the memory comes the experience, little pieces of the experience come. And so I really feel that there's a a good percentage of people out there that have to and 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 should rekindle mm. and not lose. Yeah. You know, they mm. they still have the matches, they just don't know yeah. how to light them. And it's something <laughs> us as humans. <laughs> and you like know? you said, it's something us as humans really struggle with because we have, you know, copied lots of old patterns from unhealthy our, love experiences. Yeah. And they can dominate. The way love works is at the beginning of a love relationship. The chemistry can be so powerful that it holds these patterns in abeyance. Mm. So yeah. what you have is you have a honeymoon. Yeah, you're I mean, almost blinded are, to the pattern. Absolutely. Yeah. And they're, mm. they're in love and the honeymoon and the telepathy going on between the two of them. It's really beautiful. But once they settle into, and here's the dirty word, relationship, mm. they become... Familia starts to show up. The familia knocks at your door. Let me in, familia. Yeah. And the relationship. And now the chemistry is coming down. The relationship is gaining in power. And if the relationship is unhealthy, that's when the chemistry can be reduced to the point where unfortunately it goes out for some people. And that's, mm. a, that's a big problem. So mm. correcting the relationship mm. is a way in which the chemistry can be allowed to, to exist again in mm. the relationship. It, it, it sort of has its natural place. You know, chemistry is a natural process. We don't create chemistry. Mm. We relate to it. You know, you can't make yourself love somebody. You can't make yourself not love somebody. Mm. Love is there. Love comes mm. to you. And when you're in love with somebody, you can block the love. You can put it away. Or you can take the life out of it. You can do all these processes, but it's there. And so when you feed it again, when you make room for it again, I think that's when the rekindling process is reenacted. And so what I believe is when two people fall in love, the love is still there. 
I'm an optimist with this. I believe the love is still there. It's not being nurtured. Yes. The relationship is killing it. Yeah. And uh, my optimism is that it's in the closet, man. Mm. Go get it. Mm. Pull it out. Dust it off. Clean it. Feed it. Dust it off. (laughs) Put some energy into it. (laughs) Nurture it because it hasn't been nurtured at all. How about this? Take your wife out for a date. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. The importance of dating and keeping it. Keeping Absolutely. everything fresh and yeah. alive. We're Absolutely. always um, yeah. We date that. we date and, each other regularly. And, and, and the don't kids wait get in the, the way, but we do. Do <laughs> Don't wait for the man to do it. On a moment's notice, take him aside, interrupt him, tell him you love him. Yeah. Mm. Mm. yeah, it is really about that. Remembering back to how you met and what you loved about that person, uh-huh. and bringing that into the relationship all the time, as well as doing the work. Noticing, uh-huh. oh, these are the things, the unhealthy things that I'm bringing to this relationship. Absolutely, both. The, the both. unhealthy projections uh-huh. that's happening Met between us and the uh-huh. conversation that needs to happen in that. Intimacy is really important. We're creating our own intimacy online course at the moment, which is about helping uh-huh. them learn about intimacy and how to communicate better and how to be more intimate with each other because we feel that that's a key component to a relationship you're in a relationship because you want to have this deep connection with someone that intimate connection with someone it's not just surface and everyone's doing their own thing and occasionally meeting and you know it's not about the physical act of sex it's actually about Uh that deep connected feeling between two people and that's the thing that needs to be nurtured and that's the thing that needs to be rekindled or moved or worked on the whole time yes intimacy is a phenomena i think of it as something that's living and it can be healthy if it's nurtured mm. and taken care of. Mm. If you neglect it, it begins to die. Mm. And it has components. It can show up when you're having sex, but it's not sex. Mm. It's not how you manage your money together. It's not how you buy a house or raise your kids. It's a phenomena of connection. I'm going to use your word connection between two people. And it's a beautiful feeling. It's something that you can learn from till the end of life. It's mm. never 100% understood. It's mm. evolving. It's new. Mm. It's living. Yeah. And it has to be taken care of. And people who have a soulmate in their lives, people who live for 50 years with someone. I mean, my parents were, were together for 70 years. Wow. And 70 years... When you get to the end of life, this person is a part of you. Mm, and it's yeah. strange. Mm. I mean, and that, I don't mean you lose something, you gain something. It's really magnificent. Mm. You know, intimacy is a wonderful phenomenon. Yeah. It's healing. It That's is. another area yeah. Yeah. about it that I yeah. think sometimes gets overlooked. That yeah. there's a healing component to intimacy. Absolutely. Um, uh, I'm an interpersonal psychoanalyst. I was trained in an approach where... Uh, interpersonal relations are the best and worst things that happen in people's lives. Uh, interpersonal relationship can be a healing opportunity, mm. experience, or it can be the source of toxicity mm. and unhealthy patterns, as we've been discussing. I spend a lot of time thinking about how interpersonal relations really formulate the basis of mental illness, for example, or healing opportunity with people. So I believe in my line of work, I see patients long-term. I believe in growth. I see myself as being invited into a journey where somebody 
I sit shotgun in somebody's growth experience. <laughs> Why are you going down that road, man? Come on. <laughs> Watch out for that wall. Um, you know. <laughs> so it sounds like me in the car, actually. <laughs> oh, how about this one? Excuse me. Uh, are you going to invite him into the back seat? No, no, no. <laughs> Don't be picking up that. Don't guy. pick up that hitchhiker. No. Keep going. Keep going. Don't hitchhiker. <laughs> He's not the right hitchhiker. No. Um, I like that idea like sort of you know in your work you're sort of nudging people in the right direction and I, I really believe the importance of you can't change someone but you can no. give them a little sort of nudge in the right direction it's like you know a little bit of help and support and to help people move yes. in and, a direction yeah, which and is you, healthy and you and do that based them. on a relationship yeah, yeah. see that's the, the the fundamental power of the uh, influence of the guidance is the relationship you have with someone and you cultivate a relationship and a certain amount of this emotional intimacy we're talking about shows up when you do that. Mm. When you work with people who are interested in growth, they go down the path of trust mm. with you. And mm. when they have a hang up in that area, it needs to be discussed. It needs mm. to be talked about as you would in any relationship. Yes. So yeah. there's elements of intimacy in in relationships where you work with people because that's what you have to do to get to that openness, to get to that receptivity to change and growth. Mm -hmm. So you, you can't run away from intimacy when it shows up. Like I have patients that I've seen for a long time that will say to me, I think you were a little upset about what I said to you yesterday. And right at that moment, I have to think, Okay, I could be a rigid Freudian and say, what does that mean to you? <laughs> <laughs> or I could answer the question, be vulnerable mm. and tell the patient, yeah, I was a little bit frustrated with what you were saying because I think you're starting to be self-destructive like you've been mm. in the past two years. Mm. We're doing the same thing over and over again. Or uh, let's go a little deeper. Uh, right now I'm thinking of my father and how he drink too much mm. as you were describing your struggles with the bottle. Mm. And so it invites an opportunity for intimacy to occur in the form of two people. And here's a, an important word when you're talking about, mm. I'm sorry. It's much more powerful, powerful mm. and mutual. There's mm. a mutuality Connection. in mm. it mm. that allows a person to trust that they're in the presence of someone who's open Mm. and able to apply consciousness in either direction. And mm. people, what I've discovered, and the people that have trained me, taught me, is that in that context, people grow faster mm. and deeper when that type of intimate experience occurs. Mm. Yeah, and that's the, there's a combination of vulnerability and authenticity in that. Isn't there? Which allows people to actually that that's the sort of thing that pulls people in because they're like, oh, this is real, and there's a depth to this. Mm. You know, there's not uh -huh. a surface level mm. sort of. Yeah, you know, and I'm in the presence of someone who uh, is not a hypocrite. Mm. It, it, they're they're open to the same processes that I'm being invited into. Mm. So it's it's a mutual experience together. But you know, it's not easy. To work in that way, no, I have to say. No, no, because you have to, rather than put it, keep everything at a distance, you're actually allowing yourself to be fully present in there 
and to ah, share of yourself Another good as word, well. present. Yeah. Yes, mm-hmm. uh huh, presence, right? And that you know you have to be able to tolerate honesty. Mm-hmm. The second one you took out of the list, honesty, is a an interesting experience to come back from if you've taught dishonesty in the form of distorting the truth or omitting the truth, which are two forms of dishonesty, mm. uh, you have an opportunity to tolerate the emotional experience that comes when you tell the truth. And I put it like that because telling the truth it can be painful. Yeah, so true. Yeah, so true. But it's a pain that is therapeutic There's growth in and that. healing. In your book, which, as I said, we loved and <laughs> we really got a lot out of mm. actually. In chapter five, you actually break down the whole process and put yourself through the process, make it clear how you've gone through this yourself. You've looked at your own unhealthy love life experiences and worked through it. And I found that fascinating because as you said, even working with people and being present with them, it meant that you took that to another level. It's no longer, I've got this information here it is, you work on it. I've got this information. It's important. I did it. This is how it worked for me. This is what I got out of it as an example. And this is how I feel it can help you. And I feel there's a lot of power in that, in that sharing of story and that sharing of your own experience. Yeah, uh, I was the only one to sign the confidentiality agreement. (laughs) (laughs) The waiver's like, oh, yes. All right, right. Nobody else would, so I couldn't use any other case study. <laughs> yeah, I drove myself a little crazy trying to think of which patients I would approach to, mm. to put their love lives in the book. Mm. And I then I thought, no, no, let me walk the walk and talk the talk because mm. I, I do believe in that mutuality and I think the power of it is important. So mm. I even included a picture of mom and dad. I'm sure yeah, you've seen yeah, it in great. chapter yeah, five. Yeah, you know, and myself yeah. as a little baby. Yeah. And, oh, God, please. Uh, there was a few rumblings up in the sky <laughs> when I put that in. But, <laughs> all right. That's <laughs> no, very but, appealing. Uh, yeah. I did it for multiple reasons. One was I, I wanted to center myself in the process so I could talk about it in an authentic manner. I didn't want to talk about it in a theoretical manner. Mm. I wanted the book to be a book that people could relate to. Mm. Uh, They could read and feel like it's easily understood and it's direct. Yeah, you've achieved that. something that they can use as a guide. Mm. Yes. That I wasn't being at a distance looking at this phenomena, that I was in it. Mm. And I wanted to talk about it from that inside place. So that's why I put that, Mm. chapter five. You know, putting mom and dad's picture of myself as a child at one and a half years of age, it was the way in which I was trying to communicate with myself. Like, okay, like, here we go, right into the center, and there they are. So it was, I know, I think I needed to do that to keep myself there because I'm a product of academia, you know, I, I teach at NYU. I'm on the faculty. I mean, I, you know, I wrote a book in 1999 about psychoanalysis, a, a textbook. You know, I can talk in that detached, academic, abstract, mm. formulated way. Yeah. And I'm not saying that's not important. It is in mm. many respects in different contexts. Mm. But for this book, I wanted it to be a book that's personalized, mm. that I invite people to you know when i when i have the lines next to the unhealthy relationship experiences where you can make a check or on the ones that are relevant to you 
an invitation to use the book in that way. And I wanted chapter five to convince people that I did this myself. In my PowerPoint, I talk about, I show that photograph. I found out what I learned about love relationships and I made some changes. And in the next slide, I invite people to do the same. If you know, mm. you can do the same thing. And I'm mm. going to show you how to do it. And so I, I'm hoping that invites people's curiosity yeah. and, and interest in that way. Like a bridge mm. to get to the personalized experience. Because I am worried about one thing. I am worried that the unhealthy relationship experiences I talk about in the book are painful. They're not just run-of-the-mill experiences, everybody's happy. They're not positive experiences. They're unhealthy Mm. relationship experiences. Mm. So I don't want to scare anybody away. I want people to be able to wade into this process with a sense that they can do it. Yep. Um, Mm. that it's going to be tolerable. And I think most of us don't want to keep repeating the same patterns and keep going through the pain of breakups. The way that you've done it is so beautifully written and so easy to follow. The structure is so good that you can go, oh, yeah, that's what happened to me and that's what I need. That pattern is the one I need to stop. And, you know, you've done it so well. Most of us want to be better versions of ourselves, so it's a great book for that. Once you identify unhealthy relationship experience, it's personalized now. It's not just something you're reading that's about these people here. Mm. It's about you. Mm. It's something that you can relate to. And when you, in step three of the unlearning process, when you come up with the opposite, you know, as you said, a commitment. Now it's it's personalized. Like, I have a formula mm. for my own love life mm. that I can use. Like, mm. it's my personal formula. I've personalized what this guy's talking about into my own life. And I think that has value. Look, if you've never thought about working on your love life, and this is the first time you become conscious of the fact that uh, neglect has been dominating your love life, say you've been... Uh, going out with married women all the time and uh, realizing that's a manifestation of neglect. I feel deprived all the time. I never get the whole relationship or whatever, something like that. And you finally, somebody says, you know, maybe it's neglect and you, you, okay, it's neglect. And the opposite is to have a relationship where I'm devoted and the person's devoted to me. Now you have a personal formula. Mm. Yes. And that's worth something. And I think if you just get that out of the book, then you're on your way. You go into counseling, you seek a therapy experience, you read it again and you fill it in with a little more detail, you journal about it, whatever method you have of developing it, making it more and more personalized. I've done my work. That's what my intention was, to Mm. stop people off, open up their eyes. You were talking about the fact that you've had this background in academia and you wanted to make it personal as well as where you've taken the head and this thought process also added in the heart and put them together in this book. So in reading the book, there's a, oh, I need to go back and actually maybe be a little bit objective about my experiences and uh-huh. taking that head and that those thought patterns and those beliefs and then putting it in with the heart as well. It's, oh, this is actually how it affects me in my daily life now and yeah. what it does. And then How do I change that? We're bringing those two things together. What you're talking about is the ultimate formula for how our love lives get worked on. It's not all emotion and it's not all intellect. It's the marriage of the two. Mm. And when I talk about 
taking control. I, uh, my, my PowerPoint is called Taking Control of Your Disappointing Love Life. Taking control of it occurs when we can marry the intellect and the emotional, when we can provide a structure, a rational structure of change to feelings and emotions that need a little direction. We don't want to over-control them, but we want to move them in a direction where change mm. can take place. Mm. Yep, give them a nudge. healing can occur. It's not an either-or. It's a blending. The mind and body have an essential integration because they're occurring in the individual. We've separated them, the two. In our Descartian tradition, we've mind and body are separated, but yes. not really. That's a falsity. That's yes. a, an illusion. Mm. They're together. And mm. when we bring them together, I think healing is realized. And this is uh, being talked about a lot these days, the curing, the healing of post-trauma. We're realizing that there's a lot of traumatic interpersonal experiences taking place. People have been suffering from that. They can suffer for a lifetime with post-trauma symptoms as a consequence of early trauma or abuse. I have learned over time that the healing of trauma, post-trauma, is to marry the emotions that the trauma has created to the memories of trauma that have occurred. Mm -hmm. So now what you've done is you've brought the mind and feelings together in such a way that people can tell the story of their abuse in a safe situation, re-experience pieces of that experience as mm. they're retelling the story. Mm -hmm. yep. So what it does is it heals mm. when those two come together. Mm. And when it's done, as I mentioned, in a safe and trusting environment, an intimate relationship with someone who's trusted, mm. I think that is uh, the formula for mm. this kind of resolution. I agree. Wow. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So beautiful. Thank you so much. We really appreciate you, you taking the time yeah, to you. talk to us this morning. It's, it must be about 7.30 in New York. 7.30, uh-huh. Yeah, it's probably about 9.30 here in Bendigo, Victoria, in Australia. You've got your book sitting up there on the bookshelf as well. Oh, <laughs> yeah, what a book award. Tell, a us, about the, tell us about that book award. I won five book awards. Oh, wow. wow. Congratulations. Four of which I have here. You know, It's a self-published book. I didn't go through a traditional publisher because yeah. I, really? I wanted to use it in any way I saw it fit, you know. Yeah. But uh, thank right. you for inviting me. Yeah. Hey. You know, I want to say that every time I have a great podcast experience like this, I get a chance to talk about this material over and over again. New ideas come in, reintegrations of it. So mm. thank you very much. Yeah, and thank we, you. we really look forward to sort of continue on looking through your book and because it is, as you said, it's a process until you die of working uh -huh. through this stuff and you know you, uh -huh. you you're always working on it and i think there are people who might be scared of that that working is oh well that sounds hard or tricky painful. or or painful where the reality of it is it's like a short-term pain for a long-term gain the more work that you're able to do on yourself and work on your relationship and your love relationship whatever unhealthy practices you bring into that and you can fix that your heart gets to open up more you get to deeply connect you get to deeper and deeper oh, yeah and right, you get to find right. that person and, and look and in that process if you come across anything you want to have a little dialogue with you know my email address. Definitely. Send me a line. I, yeah. People send me information. They, they've discovered something in the book. They want to clarify or they want to make an extension. 
And I, I love every comment. Yeah. Thank you. Right. Keep up the great work. Yeah. And, uh, Thank you. Now Thank you've you. got you two, too. you've added oh. two more unhealthy love lives in there. Are you going to revise the book now and put them in? Uh, maybe. I, I'm, I'm more focused on the live audiences. I want to, mm. I want to climb out of the pandemic and get back to live audience because yeah. there's something about, I want to have the experience of moving people in an audience situation, the Q&A, the, the images, and the yeah, PowerPoint, fantastic. and just see if I can do some extra work with these concepts in person on the audience. But, I mean, I keep telling my wife, you know, Vicki, uh, it never stops. It yeah. reintegrates. I can wake up in the morning. Sometimes I wake up and wait a minute. I could rewrite that this way or that way. Oh, my God. <laughs> Uh-oh. Oh, look out. Oh, well. and look, if you ever plan to come to Australia, let us know. Ah, we would, thank we, you. Thank we you. would definitely love to host you down here. Oh, thank you. Thank you. In Australia, because <laughs> we really that. believe thank that you. your book has so much to offer. It's so powerful. Offer couples yeah. and you. singles. Thank and you so much. People thank who you. want to be in relationships. Yeah. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you thank so much you. for your time. Yeah. All right. Be well. Okay. Be well. Bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, that was a really interesting interview, wasn't it? Fantastic. So glad that we had a chance to chat with Dr. Thomas Jordan in New York about his book. And we hope you enjoy this second podcast about exploring intimacy. And we look forward to joining you again for another book podcast where we talk about what's going on. I highly recommend if you haven't checked out his book, check it out. Yeah, well, I'll put a link in the show notes. This is, for me, one of the best books I've read about healing your past experiences. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time. See ya. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe and follow us. And check out our website at rekindlingrelationships.com. Bye for now. See ya. See ya.